the Tams play these games that are the most complicated board games in the world. What is the name of the farming game where we're taking portions of the world back for whatever? Yeah, yes. Uh, I, I, it takes hours. There are others who like love Risk. Have you, have you ever been with Risk fanatics? They'll spend like 36 hours until they finish. I mean, this is a game that takes way too much time for me. Poker takes too much time for me. I'm a Jenga man, friends. I don't know how many of you, thank you. Don't know how many of you ever played Jenga. Uh, It's quick, it's easy, it's exciting. You always get that rush of, oh, it fell, you know. It's just the thing somebody with attention deficit disorder like myself and loves, you know because you have to stay on your toes. And then the games end quickly, so you're not there for like a day and a half trading wheat with somebody or whatever it is that you got going on in your regions of Rotan or uh, Lord only knows. But I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm not a games person. I'm a person who gets invited to games. And one of the things uh, that I've always loved about Jenga is that there is one key piece in a Jenga tower that if you pull it out at the wrong time, the whole thing comes tumbling over. I mean, there is a, there's one piece, and, and it's figuring out which one it is. But if you pull that piece out, you, the game is over. And today what I'd like to do is, if I can, is draw a parallel to the importance of understanding the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus as being a piece of the Christian faith that you can't simply subtract and say you're a Christian without watching the rest of your Christian faith come crashing to the ground. There are certain things that our church doesn't make a big to-do over. Uh, We are, and I could talk to you about this at another time if it'll make you happy, we are what we call a dual-practice Baptist church. So we do covenant baptism of children and infant dedication in the same congregation. We don't think baptism is a primary issue. We think it's a secondary, sometimes even a tertiary issue. And so we will get along while we disagree. Uh, we offer communion in wine and in grape juice because we really don't think it's something we'd like to divide a church over, whether or not we're going to use wine or grape juice. Got them both up here for you. Have your pick. All right? It really doesn't matter that much to us here at Prism. One doctrine, though, that is central One doctrine that we would refer to in the parlance of our particular church culture is a closed fist issue. Something that we will fight over is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we think is optional. We think it is the linchpin. We think it is the Jenga piece. That if you take that out, what you're going to end up with is a mess and something that is not Christianity at all. It is akin to, and I'll use this analogy if you'll allow me, um, if you've ever been to a race, a car race, and particularly at a super speedway like the Daytona 500 or Talladega super speedway, the cars racing right next to each other, packed in tight, 200-something miles an hour, all it takes is one car to spin out of control, and you get a massive wreck. And this is what happens if you try to say, I'm a Christian, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to just remove this one piece called this resurrection event. Christians have said for 2,000 years that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't metaphorical, that it was literal, 
that the, that the body of Jesus came back to life. He was in a tomb. He was dead. Three days later, he rose again. They solidified this commitment in 325 AD when the Council of Nicaea formulated the Nicene Creed that many of you grew up in church, regardless of the denomination, saying that you believed in one God, the Father, the Almighty, so on and so forth. And you get to Jesus, and it says, on the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it concludes the Nicene Creed by saying, we believe and look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection of the physical body has always been a component of Christian life. Some have said, I don't like that. It's supernatural. Well, I have to break it to you. The entire concept of God is supernatural. So, you know, if you want to, like, split hairs, you shouldn't even really believe in God if you can't believe in something happening that would be against the laws of physics or something you've never seen before. If Jesus isn't really alive, the entire Christian religion is a hoax. If Jesus isn't alive, he can't hear you when you pray to him. If Jesus isn't alive... He certainly can't rescue you. If Jesus isn't alive, he can't hear the songs you sing to him. It would be equally as useful for you to sing songs to a deceased Abraham Lincoln. Now, yes, the study of Lincoln's life might inspire you to be a better person, but honest Abe can't hear you from his grave in Springfield, Illinois, and neither can a dead Jesus in Palestine. There have been many arguments over the historicity, the reliability, the the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have varied from the disciples were lying so that they could retain their social power. The disciples were crazy. The disciples were hallucinating. Or Jesus himself never died. This is a doozy. The swoon theory. He's sort of either passed out of sorts and he's half dead and they put him in this tomb and at some point he comes to and decides to really lay the shoulder into the, bur- into the boulder to get out and then makes his way around the world telling everybody he's been resurrected from the dead. The argument in some circles is, is uh, scholar N.T. Wright, who's this great theologian from, from England, said the, the way the argument goes is Jesus really didn't really die. Someone gave him a long drug that make him, to make him look like dead and he revived in the tomb. And his answer to this is, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people, and no disciple would have been fooled by a half-drugged, beat-up Jesus into thinking he defeated death and inaugurated the kingdom of God. And this is the truth. It is where the rubber hits the road. It is the Jenga piece. And you say, I want to believe in the Christian stuff. I like the ethic, but you know, I'm not particularly fond of the notion that something, a supernatural event took place. Unfortunately, as we'll see today in our passage, is that there, there's no disconnecting the importance of the resurrection of Christ from what Christianity is actually saying, what Jesus was actually proclaiming. Jesus' disciples had real experiences with one whom they believed was the risen Christ. And you don't have to just believe in the reliability of the New Testament to make that case. Uh, one, of the go- uh, one of the gospel writers, one of the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul, records in 1 Corinthians 15 an ancient creed about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, he, he 
speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, the importance of this particular passage of Scripture is, is that it is generally believed, even by those who are critical of the New Testament's reliability, that Paul received this creed from Peter, the apostle, and Jesus' good friend, and James, the gospel of John's brother, between the, ages, uh, between the years 3 and 5 after the crucifixion. Now, Peter and James are listed in the creed as having seen the risen Christ. They passed along this creed to Paul, so it is really a statement of their own testimony that Jesus was really alive. That you can trust the historical record that is the Gospel of John telling us that Jesus was seen. You know how I uh, kind of trust the Gospel of John to be really the testimony of the John who walked with and saw the risen Christ? It's because of the details that are included in the things that John talks about. Here's a little in, uh, a for instance. Verse 4 of chapter 20 today's passage, both of them were running together. Now, you have to understand, John is fond of referring to himself in the third person. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't know if it was an act of humility on his part or if it was uh, some type of, uh, you know, ploy uh, dramatically or, the, um, uh, or, or uh, liter- literarily. But what you have here is him saying both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Only a guy who was trying to rub it in that he was faster than his friend Peter would include this kind of information. John is laughing in heaven this day that the historical record includes the result of the empty tomb 500 race. (laughs) And I love that he includes it. The validity of the resurrection, friends, is cemented because all 11 of the remaining disciples, remember Judas took his own life, Say they saw Jesus after his resurrection and were willing to be died or tortured to death and left for dead like John was. No person would do this for a lie they knowingly manufactured, a lie that benefited them nothing in this life. Now, you might ask, don't crazy people die for things they think are going to get them into eternity all the time? Yeah, all you got to do is turn on the news and look at a suicide bomber in certain parts of the world and you recognize that some people delusionally think that on the other end of this life is this world of purity and passion and virgins and whatever they're getting in exchange for them taking their own life or dying for their particular cause. But here's the rub. These people didn't manufacture this lie. They believed delusionally this lie. If you're going to believe that the disciples manufactured the lie, let's, let's retain our power. Let's stay in control of our little social movement, whatever it is. All 11 of them had to get together. All 11 of them had to be in on the secret. All 11 of them had to say, we're committed to this lie. Then they had to spend the next several years of their lives promoting the lie to their own physical demise. They were beaten half unconscious as they went from city to city. They were tortured. They were, they were mocked. 
they lived a radical life of self-sacrifice, giving their stuff to each other. This was not a place where, like a modern televangelist, you, you have your own jet, you have your own cult. This is a group of people that were living this radical, sacrificial life, and then in the end, they died. Who makes up stuff that would create a life like this? And certainly, you wouldn't have all 11 agree to live this life of impoverished uh, like existence and then be willing to be tortured because you're not willing to deny that Jesus really came back to life. The disciples may have been traumatized by the week's events, but they couldn't have produced a lie. They'd all agree to die to defend, most of them years after it was concocted in the first place. The only way their martyrdom makes any sense is as if Jesus lives. And because he lives, as the old hymn says, we can face tomorrow. Today I want to talk to you about two ways that the, the, the living Christ benefits us. Because he lives, first, Jesus' suffering can make sense. Because he lives, Jesus' suffering can make sense. And therefore, our suffering in life makes sense. Let me read the passage, if you don't mind, verses 5 through 10. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. That's John. Then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth laying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, here's another dig, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, and the disciples went back to their homes. They're even admitting. They didn't know what was going on. If this was a manufactured lie, these guys would have said, we knew right away. He said that he was going to rise from the dead, and we went to the tomb just to check it out because we knew it was happening. They were clueless. They didn't know what happened. It wasn't until later that it made sense to them. Who admits that? If you're going to like write a holy book, you, know, you, you, write, you make yourself look good. You don't make yourself look dense. Like, uh, we had no idea. And then uh, we realized one day. This is really what they're saying. They didn't understand. Part of the experience of being human is admitting that you don't have the faculty to, faculties to see the entire landscape of eternity, let alone the, all the moving parts of our fast-moving existence. I like to think of myself as a good multitasker, and others have bemoaned their ability to keep my attention as my thoughts bounce from one project to another. And uh, the intersection of what I call Project Chuck and Pastor Chuck is at times a huge disappointment for some, and I have to apologize to any of you who have been at the nexus of this intersection during the past quarter as we've worked to restore this beautiful chapel. That said, while I can't see all the pieces without driving myself insane trying to control it all, God sees the whole picture. He is above, around, and able to see it all. As well, he's all-powerful and has, for reasons we don't understand and often lament, chosen to use difficulty to bring about his glory and our good. See, Jesus' resurrection gives us a hope. Because Jesus lives, because he resurrected from the dead, we now know what his death was all about in the first place. It wasn't pointless. Albeit to the human eye, Jesus Christ was tortured by the hatred and evil of men, we can now see as the disciples would later come to understand that there was a purpose 
in all of this. That God simply used evil actions of people to bring about his plan to substitute Jesus for broken humanity. He chose, Jesus chose to die in our place. We deserved sinful punishment, death. Jesus said, I'm going to take your place. Somebody needed to take his life. And all the Father did was allow human nature to take over the greed of some, the ruthless cruelty of others. All he did was superintend that to do what he needed to happen in the first place, which is to have Jesus punished in our place. Accordingly, we can now rest secure in the knowledge that nothing happens to us that God doesn't superintend. Even the cruel actions of others, that person at the workplace that's mistreating you, that relationship you're in that sometimes feels like you just got to get out of it because, you know, the person on the other end of that line is just driving you insane or the person you have to sleep next to every night is making you crazy. God is merely by his providential grace allowing bad things or people to be the conduit for the good he intends to bring about for us and for him, his glory, and the world in which we live. And we just have to hang on long enough to see what he sees. Jesus was praying would have been in this holy week Friday night, three days ago. He says, you know, Father, if you can keep this painful death that I know I'm to face for the sins of the world away from me, I'll be really happy about that. But I will trust your will be done. Jesus saw the big picture. Jesus was able to trust that in the end, even though it was painful, even though people were being allowed to harm him, this was going to bring about health and life for all of us. I mentioned that I like speed racing. I I have to admit to you, I'm a NASCAR fan. Now, I grew up in the Northeast. My dad was this very liberal politician and uh, and, and a big Catholic home in a very heidi-tidy intellectual environment where your high-level education was uh, prized. Let's just say that. And yet, I spent 20-some-odd years in North Florida, which is effectively the American Southeast. And while I never embraced country music, I embraced country racing. I am a NASCAR fan. Here's a picture of me with my favorite driver. Um, uh, This is Justin Allgaier. I was out at the Fontana Speedway two weekends ago. He drives the number 51 Chevrolet. Now, if you're a NASCAR fan, you have to understand you do not refer to people necessarily by their name. They say, who's your favorite driver? And you go, the number 51. So you actually identify them or by their sponsor. He drives the number 51 Brant Chevrolet. See, I know this. And and if you're a real fan like I am, you see I have the hat on. And it is actually, I'll show it to you one time if you'd like to know, signed by Justin Allgaier. See, now this is... I understand this is confusing. How can a man who's studying for his doctorate at Florida State University love NASCAR? I just love it. Now, this is a great picture here. Uh, uh, This is me in the pit box. Now, I want you to understand something. You have to look behind me to see what I'm really... I am literally feet from the track. I am sitting in a pit box behind the pit crew. I'll tell you later how I got there. But... I'm watching as the guy in front of me has a headset on and computer screens, and he is telling this driver what's going on as he's racing the track at 200 miles an hour. You know, when you're racing really fast in a, in a, in a, in a stock car, 
you don't have the luxury of seeing a two-mile track. You've got people helping you all over the place. You've got a spotter way up top. You've got your crew chief in your ear. All you do is focus on what's in front of you. You don't even necessarily look in your rearview mirror. Even when you pass, you've got a guy in your ear saying, you're clear, you're clear. You, can, you don't take your eye off what's in front of you. That makes your perspective on things limited, and you've got to trust some people. And I listened to this crew chief because I had a set of headphones that let me hear what he was talking to the driver about. I got to hear what the guy up top was telling him when it was time to turn, when it was time to not go. See, a driver in a NASCAR race has to come to terms with the fact that he can't do it all, that he can't see it all, and then he needs somebody else to guide him. And this is really the the joy of the resurrection is that we now not only see Jesus' capacity to see life's events from the Father's perspective and trust as Jesus did that things may not be going the way we want them to right this second, but because we have a God who loves us, because we have a God who is loving, because we have a God who is providential over all things, sovereign, the king of the universe, we can rest that even the things that we think are not going so well are going to work out in the end. We just have to keep listening and getting the encouragement that we need. We have to hear the truth from people who are in a place of uh, advantage compared to our limited perspective. You and I are called to a place of saying we can trust because now Jesus is resurrected. He sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we have him telling us, I can see the whole track. You just keep your eyes on the road. You and I have the comfort of knowing what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since... We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because he lives, Jesus' suffering now makes sense. He was dying to pay for our sins. Because Jesus' suffering makes sense, we have the comfort of knowing that ours does too. We just have to hang on long enough to see why. Secondly, the day I'll tell you, because he lives, Jesus' sympathy can be seen. Again, from the text, verse 15 through 18, Jesus says, Mary is outside the tomb crying, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go, tell my, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my, God, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he'd said these things to her. First of all, another thing about the resurrection. You might say Mary, who is the first evangelist who actually saw the risen Christ, she was hysterical and she herself in her hysteria was hallucinating. 
or wanted to see what she wanted to see. I mean, she didn't even recognize him. She thought he was the, go- she thought he was the gardener. What a snob. But not so. See, what you can tell is these first century men who also would have had to believe her, her non-truth, her, her fabrication, her hallucination. Do you really think in the first century with man's views, uh, antiquated views of the roles of women that they would allow her testimony to guide them to martyrs' deaths? Now, they were willing to suffer the gospel because Jesus later appeared to them too, as it says in John 21, 14, at least three times. Now, it's important. I've got to point out one point in, in this particular passage. Twice the word ascension comes up, and so I've got to explain to you what ascension is really all about. It's not just that Jesus is rising. There's an important theological reality that is also talked about in the Apostles' Creed when it refers in the Apostles' Creed to the fact that Jesus descended first into hell. I'll quote verbatim from the DesiringGod.com website, which is the great, great ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I just think that they've articulated this in a way that is easier to understand than anything I could provide for you. Quote, Following his death for sin, then, Jesus journeys to Hades, the city of death, and rips its gate off the hinges. He liberates Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John, and John the Baptist, and the rest of the Old Testament faithful, ransoming them from the power of Sheol, which is spoken of in the Psalms. They had waited there for so long, not having received what is promised, so their spirits would be made perfect along with the saints of the new covenant, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and brings the ransomed dead with him so that now paradise is no longer near the place of torment, but up in the third heaven, the highest heaven where God dwells. And this is to say that when Jesus was crucified and died, he actually went and descended into hell and then ascended into heaven. And when he got to heaven, Jesus did something really fascinating. He took his blood, and you can read about this in the book of Hebrews. He was fulfilling what was the long-held type or foreshadowing of what was going on in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice animals and sheep, and that blood the high priest would bring into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and they would say, okay, this is going to be the substitution. We've taken out your punishment on this poor lamb. Well, Jesus came to be the Lamb of God. And in the real heaven, in the real temple of God, in the real holy of holies, not one that was made by human beings that kind of barely pictured what was taking place in eternity, Jesus, upon rising from the dead, took his own blood shed on the cross for you and me and presented it in the holy of holies in heaven. He ascended to do this. So that you and I, before God, would have an ample substitute for our sins. Now, here's where you see his sympathy. This is the crowning moment of the history of God. The story of God from Genesis to Revelation is about the redemption of his people, the love of his children, pictured in the sacrifice of animals and goats, and then ultimately the son of the living God, eternally God, one with the Father, and he dies for the sins of the world, and he's got the precious blood, and he's going to ascend to heaven, and he decides to make a pit stop to deal with Mary's tears. I mean, think of it. He's like halfway home. 
and he decides she's crying by the tomb. Let me care for her for just a minute. That just absolutely floors me. You'd think he'd be like, hey, I got an agenda here. Uh, I'm going to go redeem the world in eternity. Uh, You can sit tight. I'll be back. I mean, you'd think that he'd have bigger fish to fry, so to speak, in the parlance of the disciples' time. No. He stops and says, Mary, why are you crying? Why are you worried? I'm going to the Father. Tell the guys. I'm coming back. Don't worry. What you see in this is the heart of Christ. His children, you are his mission. This is why he came. He didn't come to just do some cosmic transaction. He came to redeem you, to care for you, to demonstrate his concern for you. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a really beautiful explanation of this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Read along with me. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The reason Jesus went through all of that, death, resurrection, hell, ascension, is because of you. On the cross, he had in mind anyone who would ever trust him to pay for their sins. If you trust Christ, if you have it in your soul to put your faith and trust in Christ, he was thinking of you on the cross. His mind was on you. He was transversing the universe on his way from Sheol, Hades, hell, and makes a stop to hang out with Mary for a minute to comfort her and then goes and pays for the sins of the world with his blood. He sympathizes with you. He loves you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of the difficulties that you face. Your suffering makes sense because of what he's gone through and because he loves you. But even amidst all of that confusion and difficulty, he's saying, I get that you find this hard to buy. I understand. I'm with you. See, you are family to him. You are family to him. He calls you his friends if you will trust in him. Do you know how I became a fan of the number 51 Justin Allgaier automobile? I was a Jeff Gordon fan, number 24, retiring this year, for years. And then three years ago, Justin Allgaier came on the scene with a new sponsor. The sponsor was Brandt Fertilizer. Its CEO is Rick Brandt, a buddy of mine from high school who I played basketball with. That's how I got to the pit box. This is a picture of me and Rick. Uh, I haven't seen him in 30 years. This is Rick Brandt, the CEO of Brandt Agricultural Products. Can't even talk to you about how much money they make because it makes uh, me sad. But at the same time... um, (laughs) <laughs> he graciously is, uh, still talks to me and hangs out and, and got me into this prime seat where I was able to see this NASCAR race front and center. I became a fan of Justin Allgaier's not because 
of the fact that he went to high school not far from where Rick and I went to high school, or because uh, Justin Allgaier is a Christian, which he is. He's a really devoted believer. Many NASCAR drivers are devoted believers. My connection, my, my, my enthusiasm, my, my zeal for the number 51, Brant Chevrolet, is connected to my relationship with Rick. That's why I cheer for Justin. If you are a person who says, I want to follow Jesus, I want to worship, I want to obey Jesus, let me tell you something, friends. It will be because you are friends with him, not as a means to becoming friends with him. You'll become a fan of Jesus when you enter into relationship with him. That's what he's offering you. He's not saying, get your crap together, try to be a good guy, and then maybe you'll get to sit with me in the pit box. He's saying, you're going to be friends with me, and because we're friends, I'm going to treat you to things that you don't deserve. This is what he is offering to the world. And this is what we celebrate in the resurrection. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, Jesus' sympathy is on clear display. His passion, his love for you. And all of the challenges that you and I face pale compared to his, but also we're able to see them for what they are, part of the sovereign God's plan to bring you and I closer to him. And I want to give you a chance. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, if you've never entered into friendship with him and said, I'm going to follow him because he loves me, today's the day. Let us pray. Father, this is an important moment for some. Easter is a time for all of us to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. But we're also humbled by the reality that not everybody has entered into friendship with you. So today, Father, I'm asking if there are people here who have never really embraced the the reality that you love them and want relationship with them, that you'd give them faith today to reach out to you. And if you're here, there's nobody going to make you get up in front of everybody or we're not going to make you stand up and raise your hand or do anything like that. Right now, though, Jesus has come to you and he is, in the same way he stopped what he was doing to give attention to Mary, he's the God of the universe, but he's saying to you right where you sit, do you want to be in relationship with me? I have forgiven you. If you can trust me, I have died for your sins. So are you ready to walk in relationship with me? And if you're ready, you simply pray, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Fill me with your presence. Help me to know you as a friend so that I will walk with you and follow you and worship you. But all of it because I know what it means to be your friend. Father, would you let the risen Christ rescue these friends? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.